coming up on the Life is a Festival podcast. So I think it would be easy if Burning Man were to take the approach of get the piece of land, spend two years, do a land survey, find a couple of cool architects, and build a badass hot springs retreat. Um, you know, you cool workshops. Um, I, I think that approach would be really uh, simple. Um, and it would be awesome, but it wouldn't be Burning Man. Um, that's not the structure of how Burning Man works. And I think that's one of the major differentiations between a festival as it's commonly understood in Western American culture and, and, and Burning Man is in its structure. It's in the fundamental DNA of the like, we're not building stages. We're not booking acts. We're not providing something. People are making it for each other and they're experimenting and they're iterating and they're providing for each other. So that context, I think, is um, one of the deep things in the fabric of the structure of both Fly Ranch and Burning Man that make it continually relevant. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Ralph Waldo Emerson. This is Eamon Armstrong, your host of the Life is a Festival podcast. Join me for a series of conversations exploring our collective wisdom to inspire a bold courage for life. In 2016, the Burning Man Project stewards of an ephemeral city in the Black Rock Desert, purchased a property called Fly Ranch. 14 donors gave the organization millions to secure the property, which boasts rejuvenating hot springs, a diverse ecology, and the famous Fly Geyser. Zach Cerevello is my longtime friend and is now the operations manager for Fly Ranch. He has worked in many aspects of festival and Burning Man culture, from promoting to vending to photography. While I worked at Fest 300, Zach was the media wrangler for Burning Man, and we have shared many long conversations about the integrity and sustainability of transformational events. Today on the podcast, Zach and I demystify Fly, from purchase to governance. Zach thoughtfully responds to concerns about environmental stewardship, access to the land, and proactive inclusivity. At the end of the podcast, Zach announces a design challenge for Fly Ranch, partnering with the Land Art Generator Initiative, and opened submissions in January 2020. What could Burning Man culture look like year-round on a property with gorgeous hot springs and wild horses? Well, like Black Rock City itself, it's going to be up to us. <laughs> So, Zach. So, Eamon. It's nice to see you. Yeah, buddy. Um, we've been we've had some really great conversations over our five-year-long friendship. Some of my favorite arguments have been had with you throughout the years. Really? Yeah. What, okay, well, tell me something. What are some of your favorite arguments that you've had with me? Um, well, I think there's a number of them. The, the, the big one is whether Burning Man's a festival. We, I mean, I don't, I don't know that there is enough storage in the internet for the amount of space that that conversation would require. Um, yeah, it's just interesting. You know, you're, you're a dear friend and we spend a lot of time hanging out and it's, um, I think we actually came to know of each other when I was co-producing The Bloom. Correct, yeah. um, Which in some ways was similar to Fest 300, in some ways sort of distinct um, and was sort of 
you know, those were two of the organizations that were taking a step back from individual events, looking at the connective tissue of festivals and festival culture. Um, and then when I went to work for Burning Man, I, I held that perspective and, and understood those relationships, but also understood what the, the uniqueness of Burning Man and what the, the role of media there was in storytelling and how to support visual storytelling and also balance individuals' respect for privacy and, and sort of a lot of the nuances that I think are not necessarily unique to Burning Man, but are special in that environment. Um, and so we had this overlay of a personal friendship and also sort of the professional representing uh, these two organizations, and I, I enjoyed it quite much. Oh, well, I, I always felt like you and I were collaborating to support the best case for both of our organizations. And while I still maintain that in a traditional sense, Burning Man is a festival, that it is like the Kumbh Mela or... Carnival, it's a it's a human gathering of the caliber of epic cultural festivals that it stands in its own category apart from a music festival, and I still uh, I still maintain that. But um, yeah, I always I always felt as though you and I were both in the work that we have done and continue to do in in service of something larger than an organization. I think there's a cultural um, movement is cheesy, right? But there's there's a cultural wave that I think we're both been in service to. Um, and while, you know, Burning Man's certainly not a music festival, I'll agree with you with that. Um, there's something about a lineage of people gathering together, um, sharing experiences that not only Burning Man or the festival community uh, are, are a part of. Um, and, and I think we both work on behalf of ideas and values more than any organization or role. I like that. Well, that's a nice segue into my favorite starter question for my podcast, which is, what would a home run podcast look like for you? What you know, we've already discussed what we want to talk about today. We're going to talk about Fly Ranch. We're going to talk about taking ephemeral gatherings and bringing them in in some ways into a place of permanence. Um, uh, we're going to talk about your life and the trajectory of your service to uh, these these values through different events and through different organizations. So, a lot we're going to talk about. And what I'd love to know is what does a home run, and and you're a big podcast enthusiast too, so you know I love me some podcasts. You love podcasts. I love you're me actually, some podcasts. You, I remember when I was first getting into podcasts, you were like, I admit I'm an addict of podcasts. What would a home run podcast for you look like? I I hope people enjoy it. I hope you and I have a good time. That's like goal number one. It's just to like enjoy the space and the time that I'm in. Um, I'm excited to dig in a little bit. You know, it's it's always refreshing to step out of the day to day minutia of the work a little bit and connect with the reason why and connect with the larger picture. Um, yeah, you know, the the project I'm working on, the project you're working on, both very cool. But like, what does it mean? What are the implications for other people that are working on their own projects? Um, you know, sort of looking at things through a anthropological lens, philosophical lens. Like that's the stuff that I think is really interesting to chew on. That I don't know that. The people who are so consumed with doing a lot of this work, event producers, festival producers, artists, musicians, um, get the luxury to have the time to step back and look at that, which is why I think something like what you're doing is is really helpful because it, it looks at sort of the a, a culture through a constellation of different people that are all working on different projects and you listen to, to more than a couple of these and you're like, oh, like there's something interesting going on with all these interesting players and then you know, hearing about people's stories. So 
I want you to be happy. That's what I want. More than anything, I want you to be happy. Oh, thanks. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Happy to be here in Santa Rosa. We're, we're in your brother's home at the moment. Yeah. Which, which is nice. It's really lovely. Um, well, let's start with you and your trajectory. I had actually forgotten about the bloom um, before you brought it up, that, that that was one of the things you worked on. You also, you also worked for Envision Festival, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you were working for the Burning Man Project in media coordination, and now you are one of the two full-time employees of Fly Ranch, um, which is a big part of what I want to talk about today. Mm-hmm. So um, when did you first get interested in... Festivals, festival culture, uh, these gatherings. What was your first festival? Where did you start? 2004, Earth Dance, Laytonville, California. And actually, you know, I had sort of been in the electronic music rave scene. This is midway through high school. And I had some friends, dear friends in high school, um, who were like, hey, we're going to go to this festival. And I was like, yeah, okay, sounds interesting. And I was living in Santa Rosa at the time. This is where I went to high school. It's nice to be back. And and I went to Earth Dance in September of 2004, uh, 2004 um, and kind of just had my head cracked open in terms of like a gathering of really radically interesting people, really expressing themselves. Um, I had never really quite experienced anything like that, whether it was a, a, a music concert or a rave or a camp out. Like it had certainly a lot of those elements and then this completely different thing of like this underlying culture with so much joy and so much creativity and so much collaboration. Um, and I had a friend who introduced me to Chris Decker, who is the Earth Dance founder, uh, and is going to do a number of really incredible things. And I looked at him, I was like, I, how can I do more of this? I want to be involved in this in some way. There's some calling in me. And he was like, well, how do you, how do you feel about helping to do promotion for Earth Dance next year? I was like, great, sign me up. Um, I was working a day job where I was working midweek, four days a week. And on the weekends, I would go to festivals and I would go promote or I'd go travel. And through that um, Earth Dance experience, I went to a lot of festivals in the first couple of years just to promote for Earth Dance because Earth Dance was at the end of the summer. It was post-Burning Man. And so I would spend my summer in Oregon and Washington and California mostly going to a lot of these events, experiencing it. And this is everything like Sasquatch in uh, Washington. um, And just like seeing all of these different kinds of events and coming to understand that like there's something between here. There is a, there's a connective essence here. Uh, There's a through line energetically, culturally. And that's when I became really fascinated with um, what was not just happening in these event spaces, but what was happening in between them. And so that led me to um, getting involved with some of these events, getting involved in production. Um, you know, there's Health and Harmony here that I got involved with. And eventually, over the course of the next couple of years, just got like deeply embedded in what then was like West Coast festival culture. Um, and 2007 and 2008, I was living in Seattle. I had worked for a number of like festival clothing companies. There's a company called Bootiful in, Santa, uh, in Seattle that I was working for. And so then we would go and vend and it was like getting more and more involved and eventually getting involved in production. And it's, it's everything from like lucidity and Santa Barbara and emergency, which was in Oregon and uh, gratify and on the East coast and eventually things like envision in Costa Rica and just traveling and getting involved in doing things and working towards, 
identifying what was going on below the surface of the musical acts or below the surface of the artist to say what's what's the driving deep personal force for individuals that is expressing itself in these in this collective effervescence oh collective <laughs> effervescence okay so that collective effervescence that undercurrent or connective tissue that runs through festival culture yep. how has your understanding of that shifted from the idealism of working the festival circuit as a vendor going deeper becoming involved in production versus now um, <laughs> how has your perspective of quote festival culture and its value changed It's an interesting thing. I've gone on quite a journey with it. I've gone into periods of being like tremendously jaded. Um, and I've gone into periods of, um, you know, putting so much energy when you're spending three weeks, three and a half weeks of any given month on an event site. Um, it's, it's awesome while you're there, but then when you leave, you don't have a lot. You're making a tremendous amount of money. There's not an economic sustainability. There's not um, an environmental sustainability, it becomes exhausting. So there's a lot of people that I would work with who do these events. And after three or four years, they're like, um, what's, how am I growing as a person? Um, how am I able to support myself? Um, it's wonderful to be in service, but that service can only go so far in its aims if it's not taking care of the people that are in service to it. Um, which is one of the really interesting challenges that, that I'm, working on right now is just, um, you know, how do we make things like this sustainable on so many vectors, whether it's economic, financial, interpersonal, environmental. Um, you know, I, there's definitely a certain amount of idealism. You know, you'll, you can go to an event, you can go to Burning Man and be like, why can't we live like this forever? And then you can try it and you will find out exactly why we can't do it forever. Um, can you, delineate that specifically why exactly can't we live like this forever define this why can't we live in a festival forever yeah why can't um why can't we live in a festival forever why and and by live in a festival forever i mean obviously you know why can't we like just work the circuit and travel around and why why is that not sustainable i think there's a couple reasons why we can't i think there's a couple reasons why we shouldn't uh and i'll start with the shouldn't the shouldn't is because then it's only self-serving you know, then it's only um, doing making an impact as far as the couple hundred or couple thousand or ten thousand people that are there on site, right? Like it's if it's truly autonomous, how is that making an impact on the greater world? It's really like, oh, I I feel good. Me and my friends are having a good time, and sort of ignoring the larger systemic issues that exist out in the world. Which hopefully people have powerful experiences. They have a. a, a you know, they go through a process of transformation in themselves and the way that they see the world and they go and do something with that. And that's the thing that I think is really interesting. I don't think festivals or Burning Man necessarily change the world. They change people and those people change the world. And I think we've all seen a lot of examples of that. Um, as, as to why we can't, I, I don't think it's sustainable or regenerative, really. Um, bringing out, um, you know, packaged or bottled food, um, running things off of generators, um, you know, you can't, I wouldn't recommend necessarily like trying to live in a pop-up tent forever. Um, it, the resources are front loaded 
the waste is backloaded. So for a couple of days, you can live in this la-la land. Um, but very pragmatically, that starts to break down after a while. Uh, and it may be more apparent when you're in extreme environments or when you're doing something at the scale of Black Rock City or, or even something like Lightning in a Bottle, you know? Um, and the, and the, the numbers just don't work. Like, if it costs, you know, uh, $200 or whatever to go to a four-day festival for, per head, like, how do, how do you generate that income if you're just living there and you're just celebrating and you're dancing to music, right? Like... Um, it's it's not a sustainable system that is creating tangible new methods for coexistence, for governance, for self-actualization, for celebration. It's a, it's a great model, but it's like life with an exclamation point after that. And that's, you know, that can be exhausting and, and eventually entropy will kick in, you know? Exactly what you've just described is kind of the focus of the podcast. Yeah. It's actually not li- li- life is a festival doesn't mean live at a festival. Yeah. It means take take the knowledge, the open heartedness, the experimentation, the feeling of community from a festival, and then bring it into life. Make life similar to a festival, not live a life of festival. And it's been interesting having kind of parsing out that point as. I've allowed the podcast to evolve. I was thinking of maybe even changing the title, um, but this idea that life life can be the open-hearted experience that one has at a festival, yeah. but the way to do that is not to go to as many festivals as you can until you fall apart, yeah. You know, and you're, no serotonin left in your system is a mess and you've destroyed the environment. That's obviously not a solution anybody wants. Right. So talking about taking the lessons from festival culture um, on a level of production, there have been a lot of efforts to create sustainable long-term um, ways of making these models work. Totally. Um, and you were involved in Envision, which is um, an annual event that kind of functions a bit as a teaching school in certain ways. They're modeling other ways of living there's a Boom Festival in Portugal. Um, I think they maybe own the land. Do you know if Boom owns the land? I think it's a long-term lease. I mean, they, they're, they're embedded in there. It's definitely Envision and these other festivals. You sort of, you'll do the weekend thing for a while. And then it's like, oh, what, both pragmatically and emotionally, like what investments can we make in this property, whether it's growing our own food or whether it's composting toilets. Um, and so people are are starting to experiment with that. And there's a lot of people who have sort of been in the festival world who are sort of looking at transitioning to longer land-based projects. I mean, a festival is a land-based project. It's just a a short, extreme one. And so you have events like um, Boom and like Envision that are working on looking at their project over a longer horizon. And what they're doing is, is great in terms of setting an example. There are events that are purchasing land, either where they hold their event or as a place to express their community year round. What are some examples of that? I think of like, you know, um, um, Delphi was, was an interesting model. I know Lucidity had their Trillium for a bit. Um, there, there are these thrusts of people that have been event producers for the last 15 years as we've been involved in this community who are saying that the next step is things like the re-inhabiting the village model of, um, you know, let's, let's take action in a place and see, see how to make this work over a longer timeline, um, and that's exciting. And I think it's a nev- I, I think it's a 
it's a natural place to come to when you sort of not master, but when when you feel satisfied doing things on a short term and saying, okay, how does how do we push this towards persisting? And there are inevitable inevitable challenges you will run up against um, where we need to learn new things, and there are things that are more adaptable in terms of yeah, event producers are great problem solvers. They're great conveners. They're great. Um, they're great at logic systems. They're great at mapping out spaces, right? Um, but how do you need to approach a space differently when it's not a weekend in summer, when you've got to consider winter, um, when you're not just able to be like, okay, this is the capacity generator we need, but instead like, oh, how are we going to generate our power? Is it geothermal? Is it solar? Is it wind? Um, how do we put these things in place so that we can do this same kind of thing and have this energy? And really, the way that I've been thinking about it in terms of of Fly Ranch and in terms of these events is stripping away some of the things from the event to say, what are the critical components of this? What is a transformative experience? You know, there's some ineffable secret sauce type thing that, that happens in, for instance, a Burning Man experience. It, it changes people's lives. They think of themselves differently. They think of the world differently. What are the critical components to that? I don't think generators are a critical component to that. I don't think bringing bottled water is is a critical component of that. Do you think being out in nature is a critical component to that? I think there is. What I think it is, is I think it's a direct confrontation and relationship with the core elements of being a human being, with the core elements of humanity. That is um, a, a, an immediacy with nature. That is um, the, the, the power of self-reliance which takes one form in an event and sort of takes a, a different form when you're looking at something long-term, you know? What, what, when you stretch a gathering from a weekend to a month or to six months or to a year or to a generation, which is a sort of the scale that we're starting to think on, um, things change and adapt a little bit. And, and so I think there are some things that, we're going to learn through experience. I think we as a, as a culture and I think humanity at large learns from doing, you know, that's how we learn our lessons. And so, you know, we're in a period of a lot of people trying different projects to, I mean, for lack of a better term, to, to take that lighting and put it in a bottle to, to have it be something that can persist. A question I have is, is a, is a critical component of these experiences and the power of these experiences ephemerality that i don't know that i actually think is going to be an interesting thing of there's a heightened sense of appreciation there's a heightened sense of awareness that in a week this is all gone and it's certainly true at burning man i think it's true at events as well in terms of the immediate surroundings of the environment i i remember feeling that i think it's 2012 was that the temple of transition was that 2012? 2012 might have been Juno, or that was 2013. Maybe it was 2011. Yeah. No, because it was Rites of Passage with the Temple of Transition. Mm-hmm. Um, that temple was so beautiful to me, and I was so mad that they were going to burn it. It yeah. was my second year at Burning Man. And that that's when I really got the immediacy of impermanence. That's where I really like was able to learn that lesson. Um I was like, well, they can't burn it. They should just pick it up and put it somewhere. It's such a gorgeous building. Like, how... And then the understanding that it was more gorgeous because it was going to be burnt. Was it for you? 
It was. It actually was, and it was it was gorgeous too because it was a lesson embodied in a building and um, loving it, and then watching it burn and being able to let it go and and having let it go not take away from how much it affected and touched me yeah. was an important part of this experience of ephemerality for me. Um, and you know, we were talking, you're saying that Burning Man changes people. Burning Man changes me every year. You know, it's, it deepens the lessons that I learned there. And, um, I remember very specifically, I kind of got it on the impermanence piece and, yeah. and how much that allowed me to let go broadly in my life. So yeah, nothing lasts forever. And, and I think there's a valuable lesson in the impermanence of these. And two, there's an important distinction in the fact that it, nothing is permanent. Um, and, and by that, I don't think our pursuits are to create a permanent festival. But what is the distinction between permanent and year-round? I think year-round things can be iterative. They can be cyclical. You know, that's much more in the flow of seasons, um, permanence is putting something somewhere and hoping that it lasts forever. And that is a futile effort. Well, and it's interesting. I, I'd like to take a moment to talk about what Fly Ranch is yeah. for listeners who might not understand what it is. Yeah. But one thing that I'd like to highlight right now is the difference between Fly and Burning Man. Burning Man is this vast, uh, ancient lake bed with a fine playa dust. Um, uh, it to me, Burning Man has a male quality. It is the man. It's the sort of the formlessness of uh, Shiva yeah. um, versus the flow of Shakti. You know, it's uh, and Fly is the feminine. It water, um, hot springs, flow, uh, wildlife. They're just they're so different. Yeah. Um, and uh, I would like to segue into just a little bit of a conversation about what Fly is. Um, I'm interested in what your first impressions were of Fly. And um, if you can, as you're discussing Fly, maybe just a little bit about the history of the relationship to Burning Man. And um, and we can talk about the purchase later on. But yeah. but just what is, what is Fly Ranch? Fly Ranch is a 4,000-acre property that's 12 miles north of where Black Rock City is. It's one valley over. It's in the Wallapai Valley. Um, it's actually a series of parcels that are all sort of contiguous and connected together. Um, it is in some ways very similar to the environment of Black Rock City in terms of overall climate. Uh, we border another small little playa called the Wallapai Playa. Uh, in some ways, it's very different. There's a lot of water. There are a lot of plants. There are a lot of animals. Um, it's, it's quite expansive and still beautiful and otherworldly, but significantly more dynamic than where Black Rock City is. Um, and more, and it is cradling. It's more gentle in, in a sense that it, for me, it seems to carry a sense of um, contemplation and healing and recovery and quiet and stillness. And um, Black Rock City, when you enter that space and when you enter the, the playa, and even when I've been there outside of the event, which I do quite a bit now, um, you know, it's a bit of a struggle with the environment. You have to work hard to combat that environment because it can be kind of harsh. And Fly does have that much more feminine energy of, of nurturing uh, and of caretaking and of giving life. Um, you know, there's, there's quite a bit that's there. The property itself is a long, narrow sort of strip. Um, my first experience there was 
don't know, five or six years ago, maybe. And I went there from Black Rock City, which I think is the way that a lot of people have experienced that, certainly from the Burning Man community. And that's a really distinct transition because you're going from this massive, manic, loud, dry, um, sort of dust-covered, urban place in a small group of people to this quiet, beautiful, vibrant, um, you know, hot spring environment with these incredible colors that really pop out, especially when everything that you've seen for the last two weeks is sort of covered in this dust that, that makes it um, a little muted in its color. So it was a really sharp transition. It was a really powerful experience because I just, I fell in love with the place. There's dozens of hot springs. Um, there are, there are cold springs as well. There's a large uh, geyser, which is what a lot of people in Northern Nevada know it most well from. Yeah, the from. fly geyser is super cool and, yeah. and not a natural geyser, correct? No. So I, I think of it in terms of it's, it's a really interesting relationship between man and the environment, right? So it's a, it's a poorly capped well, drilled in 1964. And, you know, it, it was, and its impetus, just a hole in the ground. And then sort of what has come from that is a consequence of nature over time. It is the place and it is the environmental factors of the time and the changes of that taking place over the 50 years since then. Um, so now it's a, you know, mineral rich water comes out. It's now 20 feet tall, maybe a little bit more calcium carbide exterior salt cores with these beautiful thermophilic algae growing on it that have greens and oranges and, and, is just bizarre. I've I've never seen anything like it on on the planet. Um, and there's an, there's another old geyser that's there that was from the early turn of the century, and then there's one that's popped up even just in the in the most recent years. I remember Will Rogers telling a story of a group of very religious Korean people yeah. who their their religion was to worship water and worship the strange water found found formations, and they they made a pilgrimage to fly. To worship, to pray at the geyser. Yeah, I thought that's such a great story. It's it's an awe inspiring place, and I think about the project and I think about the property a lot in terms of parallels to Black Rock City. So I think about the man, right, center of the city. It's sort of the iconic centerpiece of the city. It's taking a thing from nature, wood, putting all of this human ingenuity uh, and time and effort and sweat into this intentionally structured and designed effigy and then and then burning it in 20 minutes um in fire the parallel to that is is the geyser and the fact that it is a thing that was originally the impetus of man of drilling a hole and has been a very organic natural process that is slowly added onto over time by water um and it's a bit of a yin and a yang for for me um and they sort of represent i think both are important elements of like a self-actualized existence of this this more masculine and this more feminine energy, but it's a, it's a beautiful poetry to that valley and to the the Black Rock Desert, which I have fallen in love with in my time, and you know it it's always continually growing and evolving and changing and delighting and surprising, um, and is it's quite a sight to see. And there was one year, I think 
96 was the year that they did Burning Man. 97. 97 was the year that Burning Man was actually held at Fly Ranch. Yeah. And people were bathing in the hot springs. There's a pretty big, there's one main, like, really big pool. And people were actually able to bathe in the pool during Burning Man. I, I must have been a couple thousand people or less there at that, that So it was about 10,000 people. So, yeah, Burning Man 97 was held. Fly Ranch contains the, the crest, the shoreline of the Wallapai Valley, uh, the Wallapai Playa. And so after 1996, there was quite a transition organizationally, culturally in Burning Man in this inflection point of, you know, transitioning from this quasi-anarchistic, do anything, drive fast, shoot guns, blow stuff up kind of mania to something that's like, well, if this is going to persist, if this is going to be sustainable, we have to put some constraints around this, not just for, for safety, but for any sort of longevity. Um, and the federal government kindly asked us not to hold Burning Man again on, on federal land. And so the organizers and, and Will Roger and Larry Harvey and, and Michael Michael found a place nearby that was suitable that happened to be Fly Ranch. And that was really um, when the idea and the seed got planted that it could be an incredible place to put a year-round foothold and an anchor and a gathering place for Burning Man culture in a place that we were very familiar with and had a relationship with, but was much more dynamic and suitable to, um, to an existence of that kind. So I guess the, the, the first question that I think a lot of people might ask is, did Burning Man buy Fly to move the event there? Nope. Um, and could the could uh, that property sustain uh, the event if they had to move it there? It's not the right property for it, as, and, as Fly Ranch exists now. And and I had heard that in part the purchase was a bit of an insurance policy in terms of dealing with the different governmental authorities for um, the Black Rock Desert, so that if they you know turned the screws they upped the fees they or you know as we're seeing now that they they really limited what could happen at the event yeah. then burning man could essentially say well we own a property and we can move it and then in a way that that's kind of a bargaining chip with the with the government i think there are a lot of reasons for it i i think there were pragmatic reasons for it so all the dust abatement that happens in the city um all that water the water trucks Say what dust abatement is? It's basically keeping the dust down, spraying water on the roads to keep the dust down. All that water comes from Fly Ranch, um, which is which is funny because I will see people running behind the water trucks and other people being like, don't do that, you can't do that. And then those same people will end up a couple days later going over to Fly Ranch and soaking in the hot springs. And they're like, there's a connection there that, that maybe they don't realize. Um, I, I think... There's a need in Burning Man culture because of the cap of all the people that can go to Black Rock City. We see it at every ticket sale. You know, there there are more clowns than we can fit in the clown car. Um, that there are need for a lot of pressure release valves culturally, uh, regional events, other gatherings, leadership summits, projects like Fly Ranch, projects like Burners Without Borders. There's a lot of need for people to participate and experience and get involved in a lot of different facets of Burning Man culture that aren't Black Rock City. And I think Fly Ranch is one of those. Um, and I think there's a, uh, there was a deeper calling to say, you know, can we do this year round? It's a, it's a question. And I think it was an investment in that 
question to say this is a good spot to, to plant a flag and to see what we can do and to see how we can create a space between the temporary autonomous zone of Black Rock City and what then sort of was referred to as the default world or the outside world or conventional society. Um, to say, let's create a place that can exist year-round and sort of be a conduit between those two things, take in lessons from both to, to benefit each. You know, there's a lot of like incredible experimentation that happens in Black Rock City. Cool things are prototyped. Um, and, and we have a place to put them and say, does this work in something that can be translated to the outside world to have greater uses? Uh, and there's things from the outside world that maybe could technologies, renewable energy, things that could benefit the Black Rock City experience. But we need to have a place to sort of test those in the environment. I want to talk a little bit more about um, Fly Ranch how it works, some of the potential issues with it. Um, but I just want to take just a moment to talk about the purchase itself. Yeah. Um, and so my understanding is that a group of people got together and they essentially just donated a very large sum of money. Uh, um, I guess maybe a dozen people. I can't remember the exact count of people. Um, and with, with just no premise of an upside, with no control over the government, they essentially just handed over money to the Burning Man Project for the sake of purchasing this property. Uh, why do you think these people did that? I think for most of them, they've been going to Burning Man for a long time. And it had radically influenced the way that they experience their life um you know there there are people who have access to resources and saw the influence that burning man was having not only in their existence but in other people's and we're saying uh we want to give this a shot to see if we can take it to the to the next level or we want to see what the, what one of the potential evolutions of this can be uh, and a tremendous generosity of what is 14 founding donors who gave, yeah, who, who really made it possible as a gift to the Burning Man community. And that's really the thing that like is awe-inspiring to me every time I think about it or talk about it, is it, it wasn't an investment. There wasn't um, a desire to dictate a trajectory. You know, Black Rock City and Burning Man in general functions as a, a duocracy, sort of a decentralized show up and, and make happen the things that you want to make happen. Um, and yeah, we have some additional constraints and some new possibilities in terms of doing that at Fly Ranch, but it's still a very similar model. And so to to help make that initial investment to to secure the property um, was incredibly generous, and and you know it was something that really um, I'm I'm thankful for every day. I think anyone that comes to Fly Ranch and says like, "Oh wow, somebody," this wasn't a gift to an organization; it's a gift to a community. And I think that's a really powerful thing. How is the property funded now? How are uh, there are two full time employees? Yeah. Um, there have been you know environmental surveys. There are there's work on the property that's happening. How is how is this? You know the initial donation was to actually purchase the property. Yeah. So what funds the property now and in the future? Yeah, it's an important thing. I mean, sustainability is not just about environmental; it's about economics. So. In addition to the initial funds to purchase the property, there was also a, a bit of a runway. We have an incredible philanthropic engagement team at, at Burning Man. Um, and they, as part of the acquisition, continued to help engage folks in continuing us to explore the initial phases of this project. We're definitely interested in achieving financial sustainability. Um, you know, it costs about $350,000 a year for property taxes, for the two salaries, to do the work, to improve the property, to be able to hold and produce events. Um, there are some programs right now, Friends of Black Rock High Rock, 
um, the public can come take a nature walk at Fly Ranch pretty much every weekend, uh, particularly when it's not winter. And they receive sliding scale donations and they help support our project by, by contributing some of that to us. Um, you know, that's, an, that's a great model because sliding scale, radical inclusion, anyone can participate. I don't want money to be a financial barrier to access. Um, they run it. It's their show. It's their program. They help determine as, as a conservation group where they can take a group of people, how they want to communicate about that space. They talk about the larger context of the project, but it's their, it's their theme camp, for, for lack of a better term. Um, so that's an interesting model that is potentially scalable. Um, you know, moving forward, there, there are lots of different ideas. There, there's potential for something like um, Friends of Fly Ranch membership, um, for uh, event use space, for um, generating power and selling power. You know, like the, there are all kinds of ideas that are being kicked around. Right now we're in this, this period where um, we've got a little bit of security in the short term and we get to explore different opportunities, understanding that it's important to not, you know, say that we need to get to a point where we have to raise ticket prices so that we can support Fly Ranch or something like that, which is is not desirable. Um, and so it's it's a it's an interesting question, a very pragmatic question, you know, right? Like in Black Rock City, once you have bought your ticket and you have your stuff, you can sort of ignore the economics of it. Um, when you're doing something year round, it's an interesting confrontation of what the nature of decommodification is and, and that that isn't an exclusion of economics altogether, but it's a values appropriate way of doing that in terms of still no branding, still no advertising, still no um, objectification of people's value in terms of what they're willing to pay right? We've done a, a couple of events and, and everyone is contributing to the property in some way, whether they're building a project or installing an art piece or helping to communicate or do storytelling um, or, or, or making a donation. Um, and so, you know, it's exciting to explore that. It's one of the frontiers of sustainability that we're looking at. What are the major differences uh, between structuring an event like Burning Man yeah. in Black Rock Desert yeah. versus structuring uh, a year-round community um, on a piece of land like Fly Ranch. What, um, what do you see as the main differences in terms of the competencies necessary and the challenges faced between these two, these two different approaches? Yeah. I think Burning Man and festival producers in general, but particularly Burning Man, have gotten really good at, at, at doing one thing very well, which is a specific place in a specific time of the year in a certain model. And so we have some growth edges where we have to sort of learn what that, what the implications are of, of doing that in a different context. Um, Black Rock City is great because it is all the things to all the people at one time. You can find anything there, anything you want to do. Um, and we have the benefit sort of in our, in, in the temporal nature of Fly Ranch for it to be different things at different times to different groups of people. Um, you know, we can't fit. 70,000 people on there right now. There's just not the infrastructure. There's not um, the pieces in play on the property that could support that kind of use. Um, so we get to play with what it looks like at different times. You know, there are times when it's a, a group of folks like this upcoming weekend that are like really focused on science, technology, engineering, arts, mathematics. We've got professors coming out. Um, we've got 
academics that are doing water studies and geology studies and are really like looking at some of the interesting questions environmentally that are going on there. And uh, last weekend was Burners Without Borders and they were doing a, a build and they were preparing for their Burning Man theme camp. And it was, it was a very different energy. And those groups are still existing in the same space, but they're doing it at different times. And they're, um, you know, e- each time somebody comes through, they're able to, to utilize what was left by groups before whether it's a, an art project or a build project or some infrastructure and further the property and the project for the people that will come after them, which is really like, then you start getting to some interesting questions about immediacy. You know, immediacy is instant gratification. Like I'll do it now. Cause there's no tomorrow. Um, and this project has really been practicing a bit of like almost delayed gratification of like, be grateful for the people that were here before you not just in terms of once Burning Man bought it, but the, the long lineage of people on that property um, and, and help make it better for the people that will come after you. Um, it's, it's an interesting skill set for me as an event producer, right? Because I want to think about things in terms of like load in, load out times and, um, you know, power loads and activity centers and, you know, what a, what a crew looks like in sort of that natural arc of events, slow build up that bell curve of activity. And for now we, we have that in the project, but it's sort of seasonal, right? So we'll ramp up about April or May and we'll, we'll go through the summer and there'll be a lot of activity and then we'll start to wind down usually October. Um, so it's got still some of that arc, but it's kind of stretched out in a way. Um, and that's really, that's really fascinating of, you know, what do you, how do you design systems when you're not looking to just play it by ear and get through a weekend, but you got to create something that's got a little bit more resiliency and in a very pragmatic way, like we have to build stuff that lasts longer. Um, you know, good enough for Burning Man historically has been duct tape and zip ties and like, that's cool, but that doesn't work for four months. That doesn't work when it's snowing. Um, and so, you know, it's exciting to have the opportunity to have things that last for longer than a week, but we have to really think about the inputs and the outputs of those in a, in a way that's really important. And that comes from like power to waste to, um, you know, how people are able to use the site, uh, to where people move. Um, I've seen a lot of festivals that, um, make quite an impact on their site, on the venue that they have. Um, and I don't want to see something on that scale impact the space of flyer entry weekend after weekend or week after week. You know, the place where there's activities happening now, mostly in terms of gathering and, and conversations and some of the projects is a lot happening in a place where there's, it's a lot of invasive cheatgrass, right? So old farmland, old alfalfa fields, uh, invasive plants already heavily impacted. Like it's a nice place to be able to to play around and, and have some space and not too heavily impact the area and, and cause harm to it, which is really, you know, one of our primary goals. Yeah, that, that brings up this idea of environmental stewardship. Yeah. Um, one of Burning Man's principles is to leave no trace. Yeah. And um, one of the questions when I asked my community, um, the community broadly, one of the things they were interested, uh, Graham Barry, who we both know, um, brought up this question of... How can environmental sustainability move towards regeneration? How can we leave the space better than we found it? And so I'd love it if you could take a moment to talk about the environmental impact of 
activities on Fly Ranch and on that region and how the actions of this community are, are potentially helping steward the land and regenerate the land. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting question, right? Like a lot of folks talk about sustainability, but like we're in a mess right now, globally, culturally, you know, like sustainability is not, not going to do it. We've got to really think about things in terms of regeneration, um, which was uh, a revelatory thought when it came to me in, in a conversation with some folks and some folks that are involved in, in permaculture and really, you know, what does leave no trace look like in a project like this? A lot of what we're doing is re-examining what the principles of Burning Man look like in a different context and really what the expression of those are. Um, in terms of leave no trace, it's it's really trying to track and, and map and understand the inputs and the outputs, right? So like how are we generating power? We're able to do this season in, entirely without generators, right? But there's still people that are that are arriving in, in vehicles, right? So like let's let's account for that. Let's think of that. Um you know instead of like carbon offset offsets for the the vehicles like what do you mean when you say you're thinking of that well it's just like it's it's still an impact of bringing people to that space right like our responsibility i don't think begins when people arrive or when they park their car um you know i think what we're trying to do is take responsibility for something larger than um just a venue which is sort of the one of the inspiring thrusts of the whole project which is like oh let's let's see what happens when Burning Man meets world. <laughs> um, there, there are a lot of things that we're looking at in terms of, you know, it's only waste if you waste it, right? Like the fact that we, most events, just say, all right, well, porta potties is the way to do it. They're petrochemical boxes with uh, chemicals inside that get pumped out by diesel trucks and then taken away and we don't have to think about that. I, I don't know that that's, regenerative i don't think that's sustainable so what are the alternatives to that whether it's something like envision's doing with composting toilets whether it's biofiltering toilets whether there are ways to utilize that in a way that helps create a regenerative environment um it's an exciting thing and you know there are people who have all kinds of ideas and projects that i hope that they're you know wanting to bring to this space and play with and, and road test a little bit in a what can be a pretty harsh environment see if they can scale, see if we could deploy them to Black Rock City, see if we can deploy them to other events, see if we can deploy them to cities um, and use it as a, as a fulcrum for experimentation and, and improvement. You know, Fly Ranch, is it's a process. It's not a product. So, you know, as we learn by doing, and I say the big we, not an organization or a staff, but like the, the hundreds of people or thousands of people that have been involved in the property so far and the tens of thousands yet to come, we're going to learn through doing this thing and we're going to, to gradually improve. It's a, it's a vehicle for um, experimentation and improvement. So it's guaranteed not to get it right out the gate or to get it as best as possible out the gate. And so we get to iterate on both a micro and a macro scale, which is one of the things that I'm really excited about is we can try something and we don't have to wait a year to try it again. We can do it again next weekend. So it's a it's a process and the community is being invited to iterate. So what is the system of governance for the property? Who is the arbiter of what decisions are ultimately made? And what are the systems of transparency for those decisions in the relationship to the broader community? Yeah. I mean, most bluntly, the arbiter is reality, right? Like 
our role as a team is much more as facilitators than than like managers or dictators. I mean, those who dictate, not like a conventional dictator. Um, you know, somebody will say, "Hey, I want, I got an idea. I want to do this thing." And the, and the typical form for that is people submit a, a one-page proposal, a one-and-a-half-page proposal. There's a Fly Ranch working group that reviews that and says, uh, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Uh, how do we implement that? How does, you know, how does, it, how does it get paid for? Um, and a lot of times what that group is doing is just, just surfacing the reality of things, of like, hey, what happens when it snows? Or how are you going to power this thing? Or, you know, what's going to happen if you get 90-mile-an-hour winds, which happens? Um, and so we're using the experience and the expertise that we have and really that others have as we get people who are really well-informed in composting systems or really well-informed in, in electrical off-grid systems um, to help surface how the things can be made possible and, and, and real. There's uh, projects now that people, um, one of the first art pieces that was brought was um, you know, Matt Schultz and the pier crew from Reno built the pier. Um, there's uh, a Russian theme camp called uh, the Art of Steam that has a, a Russian banya there. It's, a, it's like a wet sauna. It's, it's great. Um, there are composting and biofiltering toilets. There are several solar grids that have been donated by theme camps. These are groups who are saying like, oh, I want to contribute and I want to gift this thing very much the Burning Man model. And then it's sort of just sussing out the the logistics of it and how that works and how that supports the ecosystem and, and what phasing looks like, you know, I don't think we can come out the gate and do immediately like a bunch of like really incredible art installations because well, for one zoning, um, for, what is it zoned for? Uh, so it's a general rural zoning with a ag tax benefit. And so there are, there are some constraints in there. It's a fairly permissive tier, right? But there's a, there's a conversation going on with the County now about like, how do we phase into the next two, three years of what this project look, looks like in terms of um, an, an experimental decentralized community space? Um, so, so you're in a role of facilitator. You, yeah. along with Matt, what's Matt's last name? Sunquist. Sunquist. Yeah. You and, and Matt Sunquist are the two full-time employees of the, of the project. And um, your role is in facilitation. Yeah. And my question is, with Burning Man, one of the issues with Burning Man that comes up a lot is diversity. Mm -hmm. um, and part of why that's an issue with Burning Man is that it, there's there's a number of reasons or you know, speculations on reasons. But one of the reasons is certainly because it's a kind of in-the-know, word-of-mouth experience where the people who are at Burning Man will let the people who they know know about Burning Man. Yeah. And I'm wondering, in terms of Fly Ranch, are you kind of passively facilitating people who want to come and use the land or contribute to the land? Or are you actively reaching out to different communities to encourage participation in a way that will allow for more diverse ideas and voices and people to participate with this new experiment of Burning Man? Is that an active facilitation? Like, are you outreaching? How are you, how are you letting people know that this is a decentralized community space for co-creation? I think it's a little bit of both, right? So there is some people who know about the project and heard about the project and say, hey, I want to get involved. There are people that we proactively let know about and say, hey, we'd, you know, we'd love to have you involved. Um, you know, it's an interesting conversation and it's something that I think is not unique to festival culture or Burning Man culture. 
I think there are some really important systemic conversations in that. And like, I have to recognize in that conversation, like me walking through life as um, being perceived as a cis white male, right? Like there's a certain privilege in that, that like I'm trying to be a good participant in those conversations as best I can. Um, you know, it's, that's not to say that like white dudes don't have struggle. A lot of people have struggle, right? But like in the struggles that somebody faces in their life, um, rarely has my, my, my race been something that has caused me struggle. Um, or rarely has, um, being a, a white dude caused my, my life to have struggle. And I'm, and I'm constantly learning from the people in my life and my wife and folks about how can we include a greater representation, certainly not as, as tokenism, but especially in this early phase as like early adopters that can get involved in the project that can feel included, that feel as though um, they have a space in that conversation. And, and there's a couple ways to do that. One is like, you know, if we're doing a panel like, and it's like half white dudes will be like, no, thank you. Or if we're organizing a panel, like, you know, Matt and I are not going to be the ones up there. We want to give rise to the voices of people that are doing the projects throughout right now. You know, we might, Matt and I might be the only ones that have um, like official full-time designation as, as Fly Ranch staff members. But like, you know, um, Skirpus is an incredible woman who did our 14 month fellowship and is now a, a member of our team and like really helps represent a voice for the project. Um, Rena Schumer from the DRI is like really heading up some interesting academic. DRI? It's the Desert Research Institute. What is that? So it is a division of the Nevada System of Higher Education that does a lot of really interesting desert research type stuff. So they're looking into like climate questions. They're looking into um, water quality um, and, and do some really cool projects. Um, I really have enjoyed getting to know that group. Um, you know, there's um, uh, there are hopefully mechanisms that we can institute that can help direct things towards less of a like who do you know for instance you got to know somebody to do that and so one of the challenges that we've had is is instituting something that's truly equitable in terms of like how do you have access to the property how do people have access to the property how do people have access to the property well i mean if anyone wants to they can sign up and come on a nature walk for instance uh we do work weekends about once a month anyone can sign up for that what's the gatekeeper for the nature walk is that through the friends of yeah yeah so you so you go to so just if someone's listening and they yeah. and they want to go and visit Fly Ranch, yeah. they drive out to Gerlach. They can you describe just the process briefly? Yeah, you go online and you make a reservation on their website, uh, blackrockdesert.org. We'll put it in the show notes. Show notes. Um, and they have listings usually um, on weekends. I think as things get busier and as they get towards the summer, they'll open up towards more weekdays. Uh, they generally take about 25 people at a time. Uh, it's we ask a device-free experience. We want to promote the sense of immediacy and connection with the environment and other people. Um, and and they just go on a little walk and they s- experience the property. Is it device-free? Like you can't take a cool shot of yourself at that gorgeous geyser. There is a period at the end to take pictures of the geyser because we are, we're aware that that's a driving desire for a lot of people. But it's the same thing like in Black Rock City. Like people come because they think it's an awesome party and they end up with a life-changing experience. So instead, like people come wanting to see the geyser and they go on a three-hour walk and they see some animals and they see a diversity those, of those wild horses. They see some wild oh, horses. wild horses. Um, I, I, I want to get back to the conversation about diversity because I think it's really important. Um, you know, there's 
there's an important history and involvement in that property that includes um, Pyramid Lake Paiutes and Western Shoshone tribes. And there are folks that have, have reached out to us and reached out to some of our partners for getting involved in that. And that's a question I'm really excited to explore. Early on in this process, Will Roger brought out a Paiute elder and, and got a blessing and has been in, um, you know, connected and involved with them for as long as he's been in that area. Um, and there's a, there's a value system there in terms of the importance of the natural environment and giving back and giving thanks and, and treating it with care that I think is really valuable to having integrated into the DNA of the project, not just included, but really deeply integrated. And, you know, there's an event, for instance, um, this incredible woman named, named Yoda who came to a gathering we had. They were, she was invited by us. She's a, she's a burner. She was spoke on a couple of our panels. Um, who is producing a women writers of color event in at fly ranch after black rock city this year. Um, and really saying, you know, come out to this space, feel included in the space, include this perspective in the storytelling, have this, um, this, this, this group really be involved in telling the story and understanding this place and getting this perspective as we move forward. Like we're keenly aware that we're in the early stages and I'm super grateful to, to her for, for taking that on and, and really, um, being a welcoming voice for other. And like, you know, I'm, I'm in service to that in a lot of ways. And I'm trying to do that, um, in a way where like, I realize sometimes I'll stumble and I'll try and, you know, I want to try and move through, um, compassionately and intelligently. I want to, I want to pause on this for a moment. Um, and just ask you like, how does it feel to walk that line of, not wanting to tokenize, but wanting to include, wanting to be mindful of diversity um, while carrying your own identity. Um, how how do you balance that in your own relationship to yourself? What do you read? What do you, what kind of conversations do you have? How do you how do you hold your own whiteness in the context of wanting to be a champion for inclusivity, as in the way you've just described? That's a great question. That's a question I really wish more people would ask themselves, frankly. I mean, I, I would say I, I think for most of my existence, I don't know that I identified as a white person. Some of that may be like, like my growing up in a cultural environment of Sicilians. The fact that like Northern Italians and Sicilians coming through Ellis Island, like we were, we were a different race. They were a different race. Northern Italians versus Sicilians. Sicilians in general were just considered a different race. Mm. Um, you know, and and so I, I think I had some of that, and also just my like resistance to being adopted into the mainstream culture, and like, no, I'm different. Um, and like through recent years, I'll be like, oh yeah, I'm I am white. Like I was, I came to understand the world from that perspective. People relate to me in that way, um, and so that's a part of that's a part of my identity, uh, and I think that's that's really powerful to have that awareness. Um, as, as much as I can, like, I want to be able to, to see, I'm starting to feel really comfortable in places where I'm the minority, which I don't know that was always the case in my own experience, whether it was subconscious or not. Um, I went to an event this week that was a commencement for the Minerva School in, in San Francisco. And like in every room I went to, like, I was one of maybe a couple of, you know, white dudes in rooms of 30 and 40 and, and, um, was grateful for that experience. And it's the kind of thing that like, that inspires me to get more involved in those conversations in those situations. 
Um, and admittedly, like I, I don't purport to be in any way, um, a thought leader in this kind of area. Like I'm trying to, as much as I can in these conversations, be quiet, shut up and listen, you know, and really learn from the, from the people around me that have a radically different experience from me, regardless of what their racial or sexual makeup is, um, or the course that they've had. And I try to make as little assumptions as I can and, and learn and, you know, improve the the steps that I make as a human being, but it's a process. Well, I appreciate you being so transparent about this because I don't want to spend the whole podcast doing a diversity Burning Man conversation, but I really appreciate you being really open about it because I think that that's so important with, because Burning Man gets criticism about diversity and um, and walking that that edge of, of what does it mean to be inclusive versus proactively inclusive in a way that tokenizes and then people feel that they're being included because of their identity, not because of who they are. It's a it's yeah. a really challenging edge, and I appreciate. I think it's helpful just to talk about it and and bring it up. Um, yeah. So, I appreciate you doing that. I, I I still have a couple more sort of challenging, kind of nuancey questions. So forgive me. <laughs> um, Burning Man has the magic of the playa, and if you've been out there and you've and you've been touched by that magic, it feels really real. So real, in fact, that fourteen founding donors came in and parted with millions of dollars for Fly. My fear with Fly Ranch, though, is what about Fly Ranch's relevancy? Like, how does Fly make sure that it's relevant and also relevant beyond the Burning Man community? Mm -hmm. um, how does Fly create magic? I mean, it has the geyser and the hot springs. It's a beautiful piece of property. Mm -hmm. um, how does fly out the gate create relevance and meaning? Um, and how do you make it different than just any other kind of property or potentially, uh, you know, intentional community around the world? So I think it would be easy if Burning Man were to take the approach of get the piece of land, spend two years, do a land survey, find a couple of cool architects and build a badass hot springs retreat. Um, you know, you cool workshops. Um, I, I think that approach would be really uh, simple um, and it would be awesome, but it wouldn't be Burning Man. Um, that's not the structure of how Burning Man works. And I think that's one of the major differentiations between a festival as it's commonly understood in Western American culture and, and, and Burning Man is in its structure. It's in the fundamental DNA of the like, we're not building stages. We're not booking acts. We're not providing something. People are making it for each other and they're experimenting and they're iterating and they're providing for each other. So that context, I think, is um, one of the deep things in the fabric of the structure of both Fly Ranch and Burning Man that make it continually relevant. Um, Burning Man has a different relevancy now than it did in the late 90s. Right, like it takes on a different expression, and it's speaking to different needs. Additionally, uh, I, I think it's same for regional events. Like there are regional events that take on different expressions. The the people that are there that are actually making the the content um, because of their own experiences and their own regional or cultural heritage. Um, you know, things like radical inclusion look different in 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 places like Israel or in places like South Africa. Um, and, and so at, at Fly, the fact that it's not the kind of project that 
oh, in two years we'll be done. And then people can come see the done thing. Um, it's going to continually evolve and iterate. And, and I think that's one of the ways that will retain relevancy. I think there's absolutely uh, a need for it both in Burning Man as a culture in terms of like, oh, how do we, how do we take some of these ideas and this inspiration and, and give it a proving ground um, to make the world a little bit more like Burning Man, which I think might make the world a little bit of a better place. Um, and, and also have an opportunity to try some other things, try things that, that rhyme with Burning Man, have an opportunity to gather outside of that one defined context, which has proven to have an immense value that can come out of it. Um, but perhaps there's some, some other things that this crazy group of knuckleheads can get up to too and invite others. You know, I, I am really excited by the fact that we have an opportunity to invite people that maybe can't participate in the Burning Man experience or don't or choose not to or are unable to. Um, There are barriers to entry in Black Rock City. There's a population cap, which makes getting a ticket very hard. The tickets are not free. They cost money. If you're involved in school or academics, it's the first week of the school calendar. Like That's really hard for a lot of teachers. Maybe it's just someone like like my mom who'd want to come out and would really want to enjoy and experience that art and that community, but like can't, can't hang with the dust, you know? Well, if, if, uh, if part of the thing is about accessibility, why buy land so far away from everywhere? Why not an urban center? Why not, you know, if you, if you really wanted, if the goal was to, to make Burning Man culture and values accessible in a physical location year round, why not an urban space? Two things. The first is that I think there's a, a power to the otherworldly, to the process of going to a space. Something about that that drive from Reno takes two hours to get to the Black Rock Desert. There's a transition where one goes through where they start to feel lighter after, you know, through every mile and they sort of let things go a little bit and they enter this other space. There's a reflective process that people can go through. There's um, you know, a real relationship that is developed with you as a human being in the expanse of the desert that's really powerful it's also a place that we know and we frankly have operational facilities up there right like there there are a lot of reasons for that um on the same token i think there's also tremendous value in urban spaces and uh, i think there'd be tremendous value in burning man urban centers and there's a lot of conversations happening about you know, how can Burning Man integrate into cities, whether it's placing civic art? It's in Burning Man's plan when it transitioned to a nonprofit to support the growth and development and initiation of both urban centers and rural centers. And I think both those things have have value in addition to temporary events. Um, and that's a future that I'm really excited for. Yeah, I, I really, I w- one of the questions that I wanted to ask is, um, whether Fly Ranch is the future of Burning Man. And rather than just ask you that, I'm going to tell you what I think. <laughs> and we can, um, be in the context of what you're saying, because I think that Fly Ranch is one, one trajectory. Um, I think the regionals are another trajectory that's the future of Burning Man. But what's most exciting to me is the broader ecosystem of Burning Man. Um, the fact that Burning Man has impacted Reno in the way that it has. The generator, which is a maker space in Reno. You you use the expression, things that smell like Burning Man. Um, I really like 
that. I, I, I feel like the, the future of, of Burning Man that I've been most excited about is um, just this kind of cluster of different things, whether they be free space that was in uh, in San Francisco, unfortunately, no longer, or even um, other kinds of festivals, you know, the, the so-called transformational festivals that were, um, yeah, I, I think that that term has fallen out of fashion, um, probably through your and my efforts. Um <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm being grandiose, um, but but not simply the trans, not simply the so-called transformational festivals, but yeah. the way in which um, event producers from England to Australia to India um, are going to Burning Man for for inspiration. And so, my question was going to be, you know, is is um, is fly the future of Burning Man? I am shuddering that question as I have myself answered it. And instead, <laughs> I would I, I um, would love to know how you feel that Fly Ranch collaboratively, co-creatively works with, say, the network of regional burns and the broader ecosystem generally to promote the um, expression of Burning Man value and cultures throughout the culture throughout the world. I think you're absolutely right that um, there is no one thing that is the future of Burning Man. You know, I can imagine scenarios where Black Rock City doesn't exist anymore and Burning Man is still thriving. Um, you know, it's sort of a cultural makeup. I can imagine in scenarios where, um, you know, there's twice as many or three times as many regional events as there are now. I think there's a an expansion of the possibilities of what Burning Man is and the future lies in all of those things. Um, it, it, it lies in urban centers and rural centers and civic relationships and, um, you know, providing platforms, which is what we do for people to come in and share experiences and experiment in governance and business and interpersonal relationships and all kinds of interesting spaces, as well as just the, the awe of beautiful art or, um, the, the peer to peer connection, a space for peer to peer connection for people to learn things and, uh, adapt new skills and find their purpose, whether it's for putting art in an event or putting art in a city or building, uh, you know, a cool product or something, you know? Um, I, I think fly ranch is like burning man and it's like festivals in general, where if like what happens there only impacts what's inside that trash vents, if you will, it's only self-serving and an uh, escapist and escapist. Yeah. And, and really like, that's one of the things that was one of my red flags in the festival circuit was seeing a lot of the same people week after week or month after month. And I was like, Oh, this is just like escapism. It's, it's just hiding out. Um, and, and I want, and I think, many folks want to use it as a fulcrum. And so a lot of what we're doing, it's one of the reasons that like, there's so much communication on our website is like, we want people to learn what we're going through. We want to be very transparent about our mistakes. We want to um, provide lessons and be as open source as we can. Um, we want to have it be much in the same way that Black Rock City is in many ways a replicable model that people can take and, and adapt to their region and create these regional events. I, I hope that the same thing will happen with land-based projects in terms of governance structures or you know how you facilitate a decentralized conversation around art placement or power systems or the things that we've learned in that space under those very specific circumstances. But you can swap out 
um, you know, northern Nevada for southern Georgia or you know northern Europe, um, and and learn from some of those lessons. You know, I was at the European Leadership for Burning Man in Urhus, Denmark. Um, and I was on a couple panels and having conversations with a lot of people that are either have bought land or pursuing lands. And like the questions that we're all looking at are very, very similar. Um, and Fly Ranch, because it's uh, under sort of the umbrella of the Burning Man project, has uh, resources and some profile where we can like take on some of those challenges and and look at the questions and figure out what's what's the way to do this that we're going to try. We communicate what has worked for us and what we've learned. We communicate. Uh, what what didn't work and hopefully people can learn from that and iterate and improve. Um, I hope that as projects are deployed, you know, we'll get into hopefully some of the stuff that's upcoming with Fly Ranch in terms of the design challenge. But I would like to see a lot of those things be scalable, replicable designs that people could, could learn from. Um, you know, I see things like, uh, you know, evaporation systems or shift pods or monkey huts or Black Rock Shade, like things that were prototyped in Black Rock City that are now... I see them popping up at other events. I see them popping up at regional events. I see and them. And, and the refugee um, use case for, I love that shift pods have particular structures for disaster relief for refugees. I think that's really cool. Yeah, I think that's great. And even, you know, we had Burners Without Borders out last weekend. And uh, would you just say what Burners Without Borders is and does? So Burners Without Borders was started in a response to Hurricane Katrina that hit when um, a lot of folks were out at Burning Man in 2000, I want to say four, I could be wrong. Um, and people heard about it, you know, news traveled very slowly in those days. And there was a group of burners who, who left from Black Rock City to go see what they could do in that space. And it turned out that they had quite a lot in terms of the skills uh, and the resources to really make an impact in that space, in part because Black Rock City at times is pretty much a disaster zone. Um, you know, they're able to build and they're able to rapidly prototype and they were able to operate heavy machinery and they're able to get donations to really make an impact down there. And they did some incredible work. There's, uh, there's uh, Burn on the Bayou is an incredible movie that's available. I don't know, maybe show notes um, for people to read about the origin story of that. And over time has developed into a network that supports and facilitates community resiliency. Um, they do work with refugee camps. They do they do work with art and civic spaces. And one of their projects is what's called the Mobile Resource Unit. We call it the MRU. Um, and it was designed and prototyped and, and developed by Burners Without Borders as a makerspace in a shipping container. So it can be drop shipped and it, and it goes into a place and suddenly you have access to tools. You have access to power. You have CNC cutters. It's uh, got solar panels on it um, because they find what people need in those community resiliency and refugee camp type scenarios is they need the stuff to make the stuff for themselves. Like they need the tools to build the things. Um, it's, it's not about um, getting an, an aid package because there's plenty of organizations that are doing that. It's, it's um, I need a hammer. Like those are the things that they found were missing in those types of scenarios. And so now we've got an MRU at Fly, and that's what we're using. And it's got power, and it's got these tools, and, and we're using those things as sort of a positive feedback loop um, and, and able to rely on some of the infrastructure that currently is, is unused. And I would love to stage a bunch of MRUs at Fly, and if there's an incident, if there's a need, they can de deploy it from there. Same with off-grid solar. If you have um, power systems or even housing systems, drop Ship, shipping containers that can be housed and then if there's something like where we are now in Santa Rosa and there's a fire and there are people that um, have a need for homes in a, in a short to medium term basis can be deployed there and, and help um, help support that. 
Um, that would be very interesting to me. So I'm, I'm really excited about things coming and going, ideas coming and going, people coming and going, and that sort of influx and outflux to the parameters of the property carrying the ideas in and out. Um, you mentioned upcoming things that fly that you wanted to talk about. Yeah. You want to talk about some upcoming things that fly? Well, okay. So it's an, it's a, this is a really exciting time for us and for me um, because, you know, we went to this 14-month environmental fellowship looking at the flora and the fauna and the wind and the relative humidity and sort of getting a very preliminary environmental baseline of the property. And we took that, we started to do some experimental events in terms of the work weekends, BWB hosts an event, the Desert Research Institute is doing an event, Yoda's doing her event, um, and sort of looking at small scale, what it's like to do events in this space and what systems are scalable and how how can we help support that as facilitators, not as men. These are not our events. This is the community coming in and, and doing, their, doing their thing. Um, and what we're also going to do is take those lessons and the information that we have and sort of the the data that has been gathered and we're going to get to a really interesting point where we say what happens when we take this beyond a couple of days because right now what we're doing is still relying really heavily on our event production experience uh, or event production understanding as a community you know we can support about 100 people for a weekend or a couple days or a week right like that's about where we're at and i think i think we're ready to take on the challenge of crossing that next threshold. And that's when things get really interesting to me is when we start looking at a couple of weeks, a month, a year. Um, so in order to do that, we've got uh, a design challenge process that we're going through. And so we, Fly Ranch has partnered with the Land Art Generator Initiative. They do biennial design challenges every other year in different cities around the world. They've done New York and Copenhagen and Dubai and there's one in Abu Dhabi coming up. Um, and they say they want to solicit designs for works of art that create power in site-specific installations for an area. So they'll release a design criteria, they'll release information about the site, and they will put it out to a design community and say, say, what do you got? What can go here? What can, what can be something beautifully and aesthetically interesting and awe-inspiring and maybe a little challenging that can generate power? Super cool. We're taking that model and... We're, we're sort of expanding it to five broad criteria of things that we're soliciting submissions for. And are you soliciting these submissions right now? So it's going to open January 2020. Okay. So in 2020, Fly Ranch is the site that has been selected by the Land Art Generator Initiative, oh. who, who I will henceforth refer to as Loggy. Um, okay, yeah, I want to just make it really clear. So if for the listener right now, what you're about to describe is something that they could potentially submit and participate in in January 2020? Yes, Nice. And this is the way that the, this is going to be the process by which Fly Ranch's infrastructure, the foundational infrastructure of Fly Ranch is sustainable, community sourced, iterative. That's, that's the Burning Man model. The thing that, that, that mirrors something like an honorary grant art process where we say it's, um, you know, we're looking for submissions in five categories and I'll quickly go through those categories. Uh, the first is power. We're 25 miles from the, the power grid right? But we also have 300 sunny days a year. We're sitting on top of one of the largest geothermal hotbeds in the West United States. We have winds up to 90 miles an hour. 
Awesome. Um, water for being in the middle of the desert. That's another category. Second category is water. We have a tremendous amount of water for being in the middle of the desert. What can we do with that? Um, not just for irrigation, but drinking water, possibly renewably powered ice, um, all kinds of systems that if used intelligently, water is incredible. Uh, shelter. You want to have space. If you want to have people doing things, you got to have space for it. So the third category is shelter. Um, and this can be everything from individual little sleeping pods to maker spaces. Um, food. Uh, you know, I hope that in the future, we're not going to have to buy food from Reno and truck it up to cook it at Fly Ranch. Like we've got the space. It's got an agricultural history. If we employ the water in the appropriate wastes, there's a lot that we can do there, even being in the high desert. I'm you know, deeply inspired by um, work in history in, in permaculture, both as a cultural system in general, but also as a, in terms of agriculture and uh, things that you can do with intelligent design in the desert are incredible. Aquaponic systems, hydroponic systems, intentional use of swales, um, it's really incredible. And then the fifth category is regeneration. Regeneration being things like composting systems, uh, biogas. How do you take what is currently conceived of as waste and, and make it uh, a benefit to the environment, to the project, to the culture, to the people that are coming and going? So those are the five categories which we will be um, seeking submissions for. We will be publishing design criteria January 2020 when we open. Um, we'll go through a process of submissions up until about May. And then those will be reviewed by leading uh, experts in those five fields. Um, you know, not entirely Burning Man staff members. You know, like we're going to be employing on people that, that have this expertise and have been contributing to the project. Uh, folks like people at the DRI and folks like um, Paiute elders and folks like permaculturalists that have been involved in this and say, you know, what's going to help this project really be considerate of a wide variety of needs which is one of our challenges now if we we have to try and design to anticipate future needs of people that are not ourselves or of people that don't have our life experiences or people that want to try and do different types of things um and so having everyone have a voice early on is super important um and then through the course of the end of 2020 those will go through a process of selection of finalists and then those a certain number of those will receive grant monies much in the way of honoraria. And the grant money, where's that coming from? That'll come from Burning Man. That'll come from Fly Ranch, okay. much, much and, like an honoraria grant. And the organization that's been doing these, the, to say again the name of the organization? Land Art Generator Initiative. And are they, are they giving grants as well? What's their role in terms of? So, there's, so they're the administrative partner in this, you know? Like if, if we as Fly Ranch or Burning Man were to spin up a, a program like this, like it would take us a couple more years because we don't have that experience. They're really, um, I'm going through their process right now as a juror for the Abu Dhabi 2019 design challenge. Um, and they have some really wonderful systems set up for transparency, for communication, for showing the finalists. Like they're, they're a really wonderful partner that has that experience in a way that, that we don't. And, and probably a network as well of designers who've participated in the past to get beyond the Burning Man network. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible. They've, you know, you can go to their website again, show notes, website. Um, you have to send me all these. I will. <laughs> um, I'll find it. There's some incredible examples of things that have been created from the, the small and beautiful and nuanced to the like big, ambitious and really cool. Um, and I'm really excited to take that design community and put it together with 
the desert-tested ingenuity of the Burning Man community that has a lot of expertise in this area. Um, and so I imagine it will be, you know, like sort of how the temple proposal goes, where we don't dictate an aesthetic, we don't dictate um, uh, the form or the materials so much as, here's a purpose. Here's a purpose we need to fill. What are your ideas? What are your imaginations? Let's put that out to the community and see how they can contribute and really shape in a foundational way the future of this property and of this project. And for me, that's really exciting. 2021, we'll start to build. Um, and through that build process, we will then have that foundational infrastructure in which we will be able to do larger events, longer-term residencies, bigger art projects. Um, it, it will give it a sustainable, scalable, open-source structure in which we can have uh, more people on site doing interesting things. And then it's then it really starts to tick. And I'm, I'm really excited about what will happen through this this process. So you have described yourself as a facilitator and you've also in our, in our moment in the conversation we were discussing race and identity um, uh, you've really characterized yourself as a listener. And um, I want to ask you a question and I hope you feel free to answer it, which is um, have you envisioned, have you imagined in your own view, what Fly Ranch could become. And I'm not saying that Fly Ranch should yeah. become this, yeah. Yeah. but like, are you in your own heart, my friend Zach, yeah. what do you want there? What do you dream of there? What might, well, what not what you want, but what might be there? Have you thought about that? Do you have your own visions? I do and I have. And when I first got involved in the project, I was really excited to help usher the project towards what I wanted. Um, and it's been a really interesting process of not only coming to realize like, hey, that's not my job and that's not my role, but the collective vision is so much more beautiful. Um, you know, I love Black Rock City because you've got Death Guild and you've got Hugsville and you've got grandma's knitting and you've got pancakes and porn and like all of these things that I, I, I wouldn't have put into the idea bucket of my ideal city, but I'm so glad they're there. And I'm so glad that people are, are passionate about that. Um, and so like, while I've got the things that I find joy in and in that I look forward to being there, if that's just it, it's, that's a disappointment. And so for me, it's been an education, like really stepping back into that facilitator role and really saying my idea and my vision of success is about a really diverse participation. It's about a really, all these different kinds of things that I couldn't even conceive of because like I'm one human being with one set of life experiences with one take in, on, on Burning Man. And like, I have the way I do Burning Man, which I know is a little different from the way that you do Burning Man, Amy. Yeah, I'm fancy. You're fancy. <laughs> you got that, that little line bicycle. I got a line like, bike. I, I, I went five years without a bike and last year I had a bike for the first time and I was like, oh yeah, this is an awesome way to get around. Um, and, and so I just hope that there's space for that. There's space for people to do Fly Rancher, to do Burning Man in different ways. Um, that's what really excites me. And, and through a process like a design challenge model, um, I think that's how we'll get there in really pragmatic operational ways. I like your answer. So as we wrap up our conversation today, 
because um, there's a lot of questions that people have about fly, and there's we do not have the scope to do all of them. But I feel like we feel like we got some good got some good stuff there. I want to come back to the trajectory of your life, and um, I remember having a conversation with you previously where we both kind of bemoaned the unsustainability of the festival circuit and bouncing around and and wanting to find permanence in being of service to these values that we discovered in these spaces of congregation. And how do you feel about the journey of your life coming to this point in, in terms of working on Fly Ranch? Is Fly Ranch answering for you some of the questions that you had when you realized that the festival circuit was unsustainable for you? Yeah. I mean, it's an opportunity not just to um, have included in my life the elements of the things that I felt were lacking, but it's an opportunity to like, actually address the questions head on and go through that process of answering the questions. It's a way to, um, you know, not just go work on a farm, but like, what is what does a Burning Man permaculture project look like? You know, like the there's a lot of things from the course of my life that I'm able to bring into the work that I do now. And it's deeply, deeply satisfying. Um, I was a classically trained French chef, right? Really? Yeah. I went to school for sustainable agriculture and permaculture. I, I I have done a lot of things in event production and um, construction projects that like all in some little ways tie into the work that I get to do now. And it feels really wonderful to be able to bring my whole self into that and, and have it, have a syncopation between those experiences and those energies where like, I think they're complementary in a way that feels really good to me. I feel like, I feel like I can like do good at my, my, my role, the thing that I'm in service to that feels really satisfying that maybe in some way wasn't there in festival world. Like I, I was definitely good at producing events and being involved in that world but there was always a part of me that was like, it would be like midnight and be like, all right, Tipper, I'm really trying to sleep now. You know, like there, there, there was a part of me that wasn't, um, would have to, um, be like, well, I got, I got to take the bad with the good, you know? Um, and I, and I can wholeheartedly be involved in a lot of aspects of, this work in the larger context, not just through fly, but in the larger context of having these conversations and meeting with people that are also working on land-based projects and also, um, you know, try and try and identify what this, what experiences I have both at events and in that space in between and take those lessons and hold that space and, you know, tap and, and bring in and welcome and reach out to people involved in all these different kinds of projects that, that I've had some fortune to be involved with along the way and be like, what do you, what do you think about this? Or, Hey, you want to try this or, you know, what's, what's your take on this? Um, and that's really exciting. You know, I feel, I feel really, uh, fortunate. It's a really weird thing to do as a job. Like it's a really weird job in the conventional sense in terms of like how to support yourself and get food into your, your belly. Um, it being your work for fly ranch or it being, yeah. Like, like in terms of, of, um, of a, job it's there's there's a lot of interesting components to it um you know sometimes i'm just a rancher and i'm fixing fences uh and sometimes i'm nice yeah it's very um 
calming. Is it is it lonely out there? Sometimes. But I mean, loneliness is human. Um, it is noticeable when I go from spending a week out there working on these little projects, helping to prepare things, really quiet days and nights, and then suddenly you know, a bunch of people show up to do a work weekend and it's got this other energy and it's, um, and it's quite remarkable and it's beautiful and it's, and it's, and it's welcoming and, and I'm really grateful for that. I think there's a lot of things that you could, there's a lot of singular elements that one could remove from a Burning Man experience and it would still be awesome. I think the one thing that if you remove from Burning Man that would cause it to suck is people. Um, and, and so, to have a space that that has a regular influx of people is is really wonderful and we're getting a greater diversity of people and we're getting a greater number of of people that are coming out and experiencing the awe and getting involved and we have people who you know come on the nature walk and then they become a, a docent for a nature walk and then they start volunteering for work weekends and then they're like hey I want to I want to build you an artistic gate and like just do you know feel like leaning into the project in a really incredible way um and then I think so far there's been a wonderful variety of people and their their experiences and their skills and their motivations and it's you know it's not just some of the things that we talked about but it's also like you know people that have different political beliefs or people that have different cultural experiences or you know we've had DPW and Death Guild and we've also had you know people that are all about creating intentional sacred spaces and it's like okay okay i think this is starting to work <laughs> What advice would you give someone who has accessed the world of festivals and festival culture and found some transformational value there and has then attempted to orient themselves to it in the capacity of working, say a photographer or on production or something like that, and has come to a point of feeling a bit burned out um, and is looking to invest their time and energy into something more sustainable that still holds these values. Yeah. I struggle with this one a little bit and I struggle with advice in general. Um, because it's, you know, for me, the most valuable thing I can say is like, listen to yourself and learn about the world around you and chase the things that you're passionate about and take some risks. Right. But in terms of like tangible life advice, I was just meeting with students as part of a commencement and it was, you know, we were starting to supposed to impart wisdom on these graduating youth. And I was like, I, you know, I, I would not recommend my life path to anyone, despite where I happen to be right now. Um, life's a crazy thing. I am, I am the recipient of so many different kinds of, of fortune and narrow misses and, um, you know, I'm really immensely grateful, not for the end result, but for the process, you know, of just like, you know, life is stumbling through a, a dark room and, you know, you hit a wall and you're like, oh, nope, that's a wall. And then you try something else and you see a little light and you chase after that. And for everyone, it's a, it's a different process. Um, I would encourage people to spend time to really come to understand themselves and like the things that they're passionate and just chase those things. Um, and to listen to yourself. I would encourage everyone to like do a meditation retreat or do something that connects them to something larger than themselves. Like come to know the self and then spend time um, forgetting about the self and looking at the larger context. Right. And that can be a lot of things that can be psychedelics. That can be um, 
Vipassana retreats. That can be, that can be a lot of things. Um, but I think a curiosity um, is, is the thing most beneficial to nurture in oneself. Do I have any more advice? I don't think so. Well, um, it, good sunglasses. Yeah? Good sunglasses. And by good, do you mean ones that look cute? Because that's, that's my criteria for good uh, Mine is, you know, effective ones that are of high quality. Oh, no, I, I, have, I have cheap ones that look cute so that when I inevitably lose them or break them, I can just replace them with other heart-shaped glasses. Um, then I think one of the best things you could do is listen to advice from a lot of different people <laughs> and, and chart your own course. <sighs> it's so nice to catch up with you and get to hear not just about Fly, and I learned a lot in this conversation, but also feel your passion for Fly. And... You know, I was really excited for Fly when I first went out there and when I first heard about it. And then it kind of went away a little bit. And I was like, I wonder what they're doing. Yeah. I wonder what's going to happen. And um, I remember at the time, Chip was talking about patience and, um, you know, that it would be an unfolding process. And I had kind of a concern about whether, you know, what the governance would look like. And, you know, if everybody participates, does ever does anything get done, you know? And it's really encouraging to see that you and Matt have been wise stewards and that you are taking seriously some of the questions that really matter most to people. And I'm excited for this design challenge and I'm excited to see what blooms at Fly in the medium term. So am I, you know? I think it's, um, we're all going to bear witness to it. And I'm, I hope you come out one of these weekends. It's, uh, it's a really cool thing. It's a really beautiful space. I want to encourage people to check it out if they're able. Come join us at a work weekend, you know, potluck dinners, camping in the desert. Any, any, anywhere else aside from the Burning Man website that people should uh, engage with uh, Fly Ranch and or engage with you and your and an, what you're doing outside of Fly Ranch if you have anything that you want people to follow or check in with? So the Fly Ranch website is flyranch.burningman.org. The splash page that's currently up for the design challenge is laggy2020 Fly Ranch, L-A-G-I 2020 flyranch.org um i exist out there in the internet but it's you know mostly for my own amusings um i don't know what i recommend to people read news go <laughs> you know go out there like being be an informed human being um youtube you can learn anything on youtube if you want well it's been a pleasure thanks buddy Thank you for joining us for the Life is a Festival podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes and leaving us a review letting us know what you thought. Or you can share it with your friends. Please visit eamonarmstrong.com, that's E-A-M-O-N-A-R-M-S-T-R-O-N-G.com for more content about festival culture and personal growth. Have a great week. So how'd the podcast go? You tell me. I really liked it. Did you? Yeah. I um I didn't sleep enough the night before and um I was worried about my own like you were killing it out the gate and I was just worried about myself. I felt a little slow. 
Um, and interestingly, when we talked about being white dudes and what it means to mindfully carry that identity, um, I, I really felt your vulnerability in holding that. And, and it interestingly gave me kind of like a jolt of energy, which made my mind a little clearer, which I felt allowed me to be a little more dynamic towards the second half of the podcast. Yeah. I felt a bit of it in the conversation at that point, both in me and like, oh yeah, I'm a human being. Like it's, I spend a lot of time in conversations talking about the project and it's sort of like, you know, here, here is our communications pitch on things. Um, and so, you know, that having a question that prompts so much of what I'm working through and the places where I don't feel strong and the places where like, I don't have a company line for what my experience as a white male is in a, privileged position having lived a privileged uh you know experience um it was helpful to be like oh human being human being hey um i, I like that you picked up on that too because yeah there is there was a vibrancy that um came after the vulnerability and as I've been doing this podcast, I've been leaning more into, um, I mean, every conversation goes the way it goes, but leaning more into having that vulnerable chat. And I think that, you know, Fly Ranch is so interesting and there's so much to say. We ended up talking a lot about Fly Ranch. Um, and there was a lot of your own philosophy and some really interesting ideas about impermanence. Yeah. Thanks, man. What is the purpose of what we're doing right now? What do you mean? Right now? This? Oh, this is the how did it go. Oh. Yeah. I, so basically how did it go is we do the podcast and then there's the outro music and then usually would turn it off. But if you don't turn it off, you get how did it go, yeah. which is a little check in. And what I've noticed in how did it go is that I always, it's always me actually talking. <laughs> how did it go? And then I end up, I end up talking too much. Um, but yeah, this goes on the podcast. All right. Well, it's been a great pleasure. Likewise. I'll see you out of Fly Ranch. I would hope so. I'm going to come out. I would say we should do this again, but, you know. Hey, well, maybe we will. Maybe you interview me on your podcast. I would interview out you out at Fly Ranch. If you come to Fly Ranch, I will interview you. Okay. And I will do a lot of research. Really? Yeah. On me? Yeah. Ooh, okay. Cool. Cool. <laughs>